If you have your Bibles with you, I would invite you to turn to the book of 2 Corinthians. Our text this morning is 2 Corinthians 5, or excuse me, 2 Corinthians 7, verses 5 through 12. We are headed into that second portion of this letter that we talked about last week. There was a long digression from chapter 2 until chapter 7 in which Paul defended himself and the new covenant ministry. And now Paul is turning to more practical matters and to instruct the Corinthians. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. 2 Corinthians 7, beginning at verse 5. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. But we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that you have given to us your word, that you have spoken, that it has been recorded, that through your servant Paul, we are the beneficiaries that we might know your will. Lord, help us this morning to learn from your word, to be spurred on to love and good deeds, to hear more of who you are and what duty you require of us. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. This morning, our text is about repentance. Repentance is an evangelical grace. That is, it's important for us to understand that repentance is a part 
of the gospel. That means that repentance is a gift from God. And it also means that repentance is an essential part of the Christian life. Repentance is not something that we should be afraid of. Rather, instead, it is something that we should embrace as coming from the Lord. And if we understand repentance, we will see that it is not a cause for shame, but rather it is a means that God uses to keep us close to himself. And so this morning, as we look at this text, I would like us to ask and answer three questions from our text. First, what is repentance? How can we define repentance? What does it mean to speak of repentance? Second, what does repentance produce? What are the results of repentance? What are the fruit of repentance that we can look for? And then finally, a practical question. Why is repentance important? How does repentance affect our lives each and every day? What is repentance? What does repentance produce? And why is repentance important? Well, let's go first to our first question, which must be answered. And before we can answer it, we need to remember how we've gotten to this place. The beginning, as we've said, of chapter 7 marks the end of Paul's long discourse defending his ministry. And Paul defended his ministry because there was a conflict that had arisen between the congregation at Corinth and Paul. And the reason for that conflict is because there was open sin in the congregation. And Paul had written, as we read, a letter to the church at Corinth, a letter that was sharp, a letter that has been called a hard or a harsh letter to prompt the Corinthians to repent to understand and to see the sin that was in their midst and to deal with it. And so there is a connection between where Paul begins this discourse and where he ends it. For example, in 2 Corinthians 2 verse 12 or verse 13, Paul tells us that he had no rest in his spirit. My spirit was not at rest. And now he picks that back up again in verse 5, and he says, my body had no rest. So Paul is letting us know that he's picking back up where he was. And he's also letting us know his state of mind, that he had no rest at all, either in spirit or in body, when he sent this letter and he was waiting for the response to come from Corinth. Now, the reason that this conflict occurred was because the Corinthians did not understand sin. They did not understand repentance as fully as they should. And so Paul called upon them to see the truth about sin and the need for repentance. So repentance actually starts with sin. Unless we see that we have done wrong, we will see no need to repent. Unless we understand that we are sinners, we will think there is no need for us to repent of anything. And this had been the situation at Corinth. They had ignored open sin, and they had treated it as if it were nothing to be concerned about. And so because of that, they had not repented. They saw no need 
for repentance. Because of that also, there was no change in the congregation at Corinth. Because if there is nothing wrong, there's no reason to change your course. And so the sinner at Corinth didn't acknowledge his sin. The congregation acted as if nothing was wrong. And the one who was sinned against was not helped. And in fact, that church was very angry at Paul for even pointing out that there might be sin in their midst. And so the first step in gospel healing is to understand sin. Sin is not a mistake. Have you ever noticed the recent trends that whenever anyone is caught in a misdeed, in a crime even, that no one ever admits that they've sinned. They simply stand up in front of a bunch of microphones and they acknowledge that there was a mistake. Oftentimes, they won't even be willing to acknowledge that they made the mistake. They'll use terminology like this. Well, well, mistakes were made. And when someone says that, I want to yell out, by who? Who made the mistake? And why is that important? Sin is also not a lapse in judgment. It's not merely forgetting something. We can't put away our sins by saying, well, we just weren't paying enough attention. No, sin is not something that we should ignore. Sin is actually rebellion against a holy God. It is a rebellion that separates us from God and it damages our relationships with others. That's why Paul challenged the Corinthians with his letter that we see in verse 8. It is not easy for us to face our sin. It's not even easy for us to challenge others about their sin. Paul admits when he wrote this letter that he regretted it. He wasn't sure what would come about. He says, I wrote this letter and I don't regret that I wrote the letter, but, but I sort of regretted when I sent it because I wasn't sure it would resolve things. I thought it might actually make things worse. It's hard. It cost Paul to point out sin. He feared that it might even cost him his relationship with the Corinthians. Now, I have to tell you that the hardest thing about being a pastor is this. It's having to wound people you love for their own benefit. To point out their sin, not so that you might keep score, not so that you might be above them, but so that they might turn from their sin and turn to Jesus. Now, you don't have to be a pastor to understand what this feels like. Parents do this all the time. We have to strike or wound or restrict or punish our children to keep them from going astray, to help them to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And perhaps one of the most common sayings that children hear their parents say and don't believe is, you know, this hurts me more than it hurts you. Now, when I was young, I didn't believe that at all. I'm the one being punished. I'm the one being grounded. I'm the one being restricted. How could it hurt you? You're doing everything you want to do. I'm the one that's being restricted. But as we get older and we understand what is involved in this, how the relationship is what's important, and how it pains us 
to have to hold others accountable. And the only reason we do is because we must for their own good. We must understand sin. To truly understand sin means to know how horrible it is. We know the damage that sin does to others. We know the harm that it does to us. And more than that, we know what an affront sin is to a holy God. So where does that leave us? Is it enough to know the right things about sin? No. Because repentance is also about action. We see this in the word repentance itself. If repentance is understanding what sin is, it is also an action. The word repentance means a change of mind. It is turning around. It is turning away from one thing to another. This word occurs more than 50 times in the New Testament, either in verb or noun form. And its meaning is not primarily emotional. It's not about feeling. It's about action. We see this in contrast to another word that Paul uses in our passage, regret. To regret means to be sorry about something. It means to have second thoughts about something or to wish something were not the case. Do you see the difference? Regret means you wish something hadn't happened. Repentance means you turn away from something so it doesn't happen again. There's an action involved. Now, grief can be involved in repentance. It's not that repentance doesn't make us sorry. And often that's how repentance is expressed to others. It's emotional. We have tears. We have grief. But the important thing is that the grief or sorrow accompanies the change. It is not the central focus merely to have grief. And Paul describes this in verses 8 and 9. As he writes this, he, he is downcast. He's downcast because of the division between him and the church at Corinth. This division was caused by a lack of repentance. So Paul wrote a letter, a strong one, to bring them to a knowledge of sin and to encourage them to turn, to turn away from sin. And the effect of that letter was to grieve them, Paul says in verse 8. But that was not Paul's primary intention. He wasn't looking merely to grieve them. No, his intention was to bring them to repentance, to bring about change. And that's why Paul rejoices he says he rejoices in their grief, not because they have grief, but because their grief has brought them to repentance. And in repentance, they have changed and they have turned from sin. And that gives Paul great joy. You see, the Corinthians not only then saw sin for what it was, but they knew they had to do something about sin. Our actions, after all, show that we really understand a truth we espouse. For example, if you were to tell me that you were in financial difficulties, that you weren't sure how you were going to make next month's payments, and you were in a very hard strait, you were poor, 
and then you went out and spent all kinds of money, it would make no sense. If you actually understood the truth of your financial situation, you would stop spending money. You would make a budget. You would take actions based on the truth that you know. That's what repentance is. We understand the truth of sin and what it does to us and to others, and we turn away from it and to Jesus in concrete ways. In what areas of your life do you see God revealing sin to you? When that happens, what do you do? Do you hide? Do you ignore the sin? Or do you rather instead resolve to turn from sin, to pursue God's will? That's what repentance is. Now, repentance is so important because it is a means, not an end to itself. Repentance takes us somewhere. And so our second question is, what does repentance produce? Now, the Bible tells us that sin is what separates us from God. Sin is also what separates us from others. And that's what Paul's been describing to us for some time in this letter. And Paul wanted the Corinthians to acknowledge their sin and to turn from it and turn to the Lord. Because repentance is so much more than regret. It actually bears fruit. At the very beginning of John's ministry, he was found crying out, Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. That is, act according to your understanding of sin and your need for a Savior. And so Paul actually declared this from the very beginnings of his gospel ministry, that repentance brings forth fruit when he is describing his ministry upon meeting the Lord Jesus Christ. He says in Acts 26, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but I declared that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. That they should repent, turn to God, and that that should be seen in a concrete way. The great Presbyterian theologian Hodge puts it this way, Sorrow is itself not repentance. Neither is remorse, nor self-condemnation, nor self-loathing, nor external reformation. These all are attendants or consequences. But repentance itself is a turning from sin to holiness. From a state of sin to a holy state. It is a real change of heart. And so Paul describes for us a chain here in the text. There is godly grief, which leads to repentance, which leads to salvation. Now, what does he mean here? Now, remember how we described repentance. It is a change of mind that brings about action, a running from sin. Repentance is a turning from sin that results from knowing God properly seeing ourselves correctly, and changing accordingly. But we know that the Bible says that we can't bring about change. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. 
The Bible tells us that no one comes to the Father except through Jesus Christ. So how does repentance fit into that? How is it that we can bring about repentance? The answer is, we don't. Repentance is a gospel grace. It is a gift of God. Acts chapter 5 describes it in this way. God exalted him, that is Jesus, at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Just as the forgiveness of sins is a gracious gift from our Savior, so repentance is a gracious gift from our Savior. In Acts chapter 11, when Peter makes clear that the Gentiles are now to be brought into the church, that they have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and been saved. The church describes it this way. Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Repentance is a gift. That's what Paul's saying in verse 10. God's grace produces repentance which leads to salvation. He contrasts this with a worldly grief which produces death. There is a grief that comes from the consequences of actions coming to us. That, that is, we grieve over what has happened and what the result is without grieving over the sin itself. This grief, this kind of grief does not care about offending God. It misses the main point with sin. It treats sin as if it has no consequences, no concern beyond what is there. Uh, a classic example in the scriptures is that of Esau. Esau wept because of his foolishness and what had cost him his birthright. He sought to make things right. If you recall, he said to his father, he said, Father, Father, please, don't you have another blessing to give to me? There's no repentance for what he had done wrong, how he had callously treated his birthright, how he had betrayed his father. He just wanted the benefit. He was sad about the situation, the circumstances. That's not godly grief. That is a worldly grief, Paul says. And this reminds us that it's not the sorrow that's important. But it's the change that God brings about. Do you see repentance in your life? Do you know when you have sinned against God and others? Or are you the sort of person that always has to be right? When you feel regret, when you have sorrow over your sin, that's actually God at work in your life. Listen to the Holy Spirit. Do not fight Him. Turn from your sin and turn to God. That's where hope is. But repentance is not just to bring about salvation. It is also the way that we live in salvation. And so another fruit or product of repentance is the daily Christian life. We are coming up on the anniversary of Martin Luther nailing the 95 Theses on the door at Wittenberg. The beginning of the Reformation. Do you know what the very first item on the 95 Theses was? 
It was this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, in Matthew 4, He willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. That's the very first thing that Luther wanted to make sure that the church knew. True repentance produces a change of life. And that's because salvation changes who we are fundamentally. If we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and we are transferred from death to life, if we are brought into the kingdom of the beloved Son, then we are changed. We do not remain who we are. That salvation shows itself in the person that God is making us to be as He molds us more and more into the image of His Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, if you are truly repentant, you have received God's grace. True repentance leads to salvation, and salvation produces godliness. We know we are saved because of the change that the Lord makes in us, making us more and more like Jesus. Paul describes this as he sees it in the Corinthians. He says, it has brought about an earnestness, a zeal. Look at verse 11. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. What he is saying to the Corinthians is, you can see God's work in you. You can see that repentance is God's work. All you have to do is look at yourselves. Look at the earnestness you have. Look at the zeal. Look how eager you are to follow Jesus. Look how eager you are to abandon your old sinful ways. That is true repentance. Paul then lists a series of effects that can be seen. They are very dramatic. And he lists them with a word that we translate here in our text, what. What eagerness. What indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. This is a word that we might as well translate yes or even more. Paul is building this up to a crescendo. Not only do you have this, but you also have that. Not only do you have that, but you also have this. Look at all these things in your lives. It shows that repentance is a part of who you are. And so he tells them that they are eager to clear themselves. Now, we should not think of this again in a worldly way. They're not trying to come up with an excuse that will get them off the hook. No, it's actually the exact opposite. They clear themselves by acknowledging their guilt and confessing their sin to God. That's how you are cleared from sin. You don't hide from God. You don't pretend it doesn't exist. You don't pretend that God can't see. No, you openly acknowledge your sin and you confess it and you receive forgiveness based on the work of Jesus. There is no sin so great that it cannot be forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ. At the same time, there is no sin so small that it does not need forgiveness by the blood of Christ. This is what Paul is telling us. He says, what indignation you have. This is indignation, anger, we might even say, at their sin and that they had allowed this sin to go on. It's not indignation at Paul. It's not indignation at God. It's indignation at sin. What fear. 
Now what does this mean? It means that they are apprehending God and His displeasure with sin. They understand that sin is to be judged. They treat sin seriously. If we really treated sin seriously, we would never have a category like a little white lie. How little can a lie be? How unharmful can a lie be if it put Jesus Christ on the cross? If he died for that sin? We have to take sin seriously. What longing, Paul says. And we now realize the importance of Christian fellowship. The Corinthians want to be with Paul. They want to be taught by him. They want to be encouraged by him. They long to have him back. Whereas before they had held him at arm's length. Now they have repented and they want to be with him. What punishment, Paul says. Or we might say, what vindication. And this is an indication that they have set things right in the church, that they have done the operation of discipline that they needed to, and that this has allowed healing and repentance and restoration in the church. Repentance, in short, produces Christian character. Because it drives us from ourselves to Jesus. Then there is a final thing that we must consider. Why is repentance important? We saw that repentance is understanding sin correctly and turning from it. We saw what it produces, salvation and godliness. Now we see a word about why that is practically important for us. Not that those previous matters were unimportant, but we need to see that repentance is a daily help to us. Now, there is a theme that runs through our passage this morning. It is a theme of comfort. Paul has described the difficulties that he went through because of conflict and division. He talked in chapter 2 that his spirit was not at rest. And then here in this chapter, that his body was not at rest. Paul wanted the comfort of a restored relationship with the church at Corinth. He wanted the comfort of knowing that they were following Jesus and growing in Christ. And he says that their repentance brought that about. Now, do you see how the comfort comes to Paul in our passage? Humanly speaking, it's Titus who comes with the news of their repentance. Titus melted away all of Paul's fears that he had written, what he had written he had failed. Or that he had made things worse by his letter. Have you ever experienced that? Wondering if things can ever be put right? Tossing and turning because you're afraid of what the future would bring? But Paul reminds us where his comfort truly came from. It was not from Titus. It's from two of the most comforting words in all of the scripture in verse 6. But God. God intervenes. God is the one who brings comfort. It is God who comforts the downcast, Paul says. God was the one who had brought Titus. God was responsible. 
And God is responsible because it was God who had granted the repentance to start with. It's not just that the arrival of Titus that has comforted Paul. If Titus had brought bad news, Paul would have been devastated. No, what is significant here is Titus brings news of repentance in Corinth. This wondrous work that God had brought about. Listen, we all need comfort, especially now. The surest way to experience comfort is to see that the Lord is at work in your life. And repentance is the clearest way to see that work. Start with you. See how the Lord will change you. And then let others see the change in you. And you will be amazed at the difference it will make in your relationships. Now, repentance is not just a means to solving problems. It is also a means to bring us to God. If we were to analyze this situation from a distance, what would we see? We would see that someone had sinned against someone else in the congregation and that the church had not handled it properly. The church had not followed Paul's direction, but instead had been hostile to him. Now, we might say that repentance would solve a bunch of these problems. Repentance would fix the sinner. It would show him the error of his ways, and it would get him to forsake sin. Repentance would provide justice for the one wronged. It would address his loss. Repentance would also fix the relationship between Paul and the Corinthians, something Paul wanted so badly. But do you see why Paul wanted repentance to be evident? We see it in verse 12. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Paul says he's not doing this for the one who did the wrong. He's not doing it for the one who was wronged. He's not even emphasizing the emotional benefit that would come to him from a restored relationship. No. He writes that his purpose would be that their earnestness, their zeal for Paul and his ministry might be revealed. Revealed to whom? Revealed to them. How? In the sight of God. Before God. It, at the face of God. You may recall a Latin phrase, coram Deo, which means before the face of God. That's what Paul says here. I want you to stand before God with earnestness and zeal. Paul wants them to live before God's face. His concern goes far beyond the immediate. His concern is for their growth in Christ. And that growth is dependent upon their understanding of the gospel, the gospel ministry, and repentance. Repentance brings us closer to God through the gospel. Today, 
is the perfect day to search your heart. It is the perfect day to abandon sin. It is the perfect day to turn from sin and turn to God. It is the perfect day to receive the grace of repentance and to follow Jesus. You don't need to be bound by your sin. Jesus died so that you could be free from your sin. Jesus died to bring repentance to his people. Do you believe that? If you do, then act on that truth. Turn away from sin and turn to Jesus. Let's pray.